0: Hello, and welcome to Eyewitness Beauty, the podcast where we talk about the biggest stories in the beauty industry each week. I'm Nick Axelrod-Welk, and I'm flying solo today. Annie had some urgent business to attend to, and it kind of works this week because I did the interview solo, and it was actually more of an issue that I was feeling and interested in, and that is alcohol and quarantine. Some of you guys follow me on Instagram. I was like asking questions to all of you about how your relationships had changed with alcohol during COVID and quarantine and lockdown and all the different iterations of the last two years. And over two thirds of you all said that, yeah, you had experienced changes in your relationship with alcohol and mostly seemingly for the worse. by which I mean, more alcohol than less alcohol. And, you know, it mirrored something that I was feeling, which was I wasn't really a heavy drinker in my 30s. I, you know, was building companies and really stressed out. But somehow when I'd get home, I wouldn't really need a drink to take the edge off. I might have a drink two or three times a week. And then COVID happened and lockdown happened. And all of a sudden, it seemed like the world was maybe over, falling apart, and I, my husband, and we had a friend of ours who was in our pod with us. Started getting interested in cocktails, and and all of a sudden it was like five p.m. We we're like, "What are we drinking? What are we eating?" It became the day's activity. And it didn't feel like vacation because vacation is fun, but it felt like a suspended reality or something. I felt like I could do things in lockdown that I wouldn't normally be able to do, that the rules didn't apply. And that included drinking seven days a week. And I wasn't binge drinking. I wasn't blacking out and not remembering things. But I was having, you know, let's say two drinks seven days a week. That's 14 drinks, which when you do the math, sounds like a lot more than you think you're doing. And as, you know, lockdown ended, restrictions have relaxed, though now with the Delta variant and all the new variants, things might get worse again. I've been struggling with modifying my now regular habits, which, you know, include coming home to a drink or two every night. And I don't know, I think I was talking about this on the podcast a few weeks ago, and a reader had written in and told me about this woman named Annie Grace, who wrote a book called The Alcohol Experiment. She is the founder of the Naked Mind Institute. And she told me about this book because it was sort of the non-alcoholic's alcohol-free Bible. The sobriety guide for people who didn't want to consider themselves needing to be sober. I don't know. I didn't know what it was. I hadn't read it at that point. But I picked up the book, The Alcohol Experiment, and I started reading it. And all of a sudden, I was like, holy shit, this woman, Annie Grace, thinks like me. She sort of like perceives the world and her triggers like I do. And this approach to modifying your behavior whether that's not drinking at all, whether that's drinking less, really appealed to me. And I had to interview her. And now she has a team of, I think, over 10 people working for her full-time on the Naked Mind Institute. She has an app, The Alcohol Experiment. She has programs where people can become certified in her program and teaching her program, her sort of modalities, which we'll get into, And it all comes from her experience. I'm going to paraphrase and probably butcher this, but she was a really high-powered marketing executive traversing the globe between London and the US. And all of a sudden, she was up to two bottles of wine a night, (laughs) which sounds like a ton. But if any of you are like me, you know, all of a sudden you count how many drinks you're having a week or a month and you're like, holy shit, that's more than I thought. Anyway, Annie sort of took matters into her own hands and figured out a way to educate herself, to learn about the science of drinking, of being drunk, of hangovers, of everything, just really educating herself, looking at the data. And as she learned more, she became more committed to an alcohol-free life I was excited to talk to her about my relationship with alcohol that I can't seem to really change my behavior that started only when the world was falling apart. And granted, the world still is falling apart in a lot of ways, but will be particularly interesting for those of you listening who have young kids like I do. Being a parent, you know, plays into all of this and the responsibilities you have as a parent that. No one tells you about, but that do exist, and how to look at your behavior, examine it, and whether you want to change it or not, it's up to you. I personally have cut down on my drinking. I'm not interested currently in going alcohol free right now, but I have limited the amount that I'm drinking during the week, and I'm just more conscious of it right now. But you know, it's a journey. And What I found was interesting is when I asked everyone on Instagram about what they had experienced. I was very encouraged to find that I wasn't alone. One person said that quarantine coincided with a new obsession with natural wine. People talked about learning how to become a mixologist. People were trying to find balance and drinking more and then drinking less. And someone said, every part of life outside home is riddled with COVID anxiety. I drink to maintain sanity. (laughs) This person says, sorry, I'm an accountant because she or he was talking about everything in q3 and q4 but basically she would or he would get bored and have one white claw a night cut to q3 2020 and they were having 10 drinks a week and now they're trying to cut to seven so you know it seems like this is not just me this is all of us dealing with covid and post covid and mid covid anxiety and so i hope that you guys enjoy the interview and email me at nick at eyewitnessbeauty dot com if you wanna talk about any of this and enjoy I got an email from a listener And she said, I was also sober curious a few months ago and did the alcohol experiment book by Annie Grace. Same z's, I was drinking two to three glasses of wine every night, and with two little kids, messing up sleep totally became frustrating. Now I have a much more manageable drinking habit. Most nights I don't feel the need to drink, but if I really feel like it or I'm seeing friends, I drink early or with food so that it has time to metabolize before sleepy time. And so, of course, I was like, "Okay, this sounds like an interesting book because she's kind of speaking my language. And I picked it up and I started to learn more about you and your work. And I became really not sober curious, but any curious to sort of understand your work in that you have created a 30 day alcohol experiment. Your story is a path to sobriety. I can only imagine that during quarantine, if I'm a good example, that your job has become even more essential, which is to sort of help direct people towards resources. How has your work evolved or changed due to COVID and the anxiety and the lockdown and all of that?
1: It was really interesting because March of 2020, basically people really stopped engaging in the conversation, in the sober curious conversation, because I think what was typical of a lot of people was that alcohol had been the go-to thing for stress relief. And so all of a sudden we're feeling this need of relieving our stress, even to the point of we feel our safety threatened. And so if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we've sort of (laughs) plummeted all the way back to the bottom. And instead of thinking about things like self-improvement or really getting better, we're just thinking about getting through day to day with everything that's going on and all the changes that are coming our way. And so people really stopped engaging in the conversation.
0: Meaning you think that people are falling off the wagon or just not signing up for the course?
1: I think a little bit of both. We call it sort of a data point instead of falling off the wagon. So it's basically like you drink, there's nothing wrong with drinking, just learn something from it. Either you learn you love it and it's important in your life or you learn that, you know, no, I, I think I ever did it or whatever it is, just learn from it. So use it as a data point instead of any judgment about your drinking behavior. And I think that's one thing that's really core to my philosophy is there's no behavior-based judgment. You know, you make a goal about how you want to feel and that goal is what you're trying to achieve rather than any sort of behavior. So if you feel great with drinking, then that's great because the goal is based on how you feel. So, for instance, for me, my goal was I just wanted alcohol to become small and irrelevant again because it had been occupying so much of my mental real estate whereas mm-hmm. before in my life it just it, it was kind of a non-issue for years and years and years until it became an issue and so that was my goal and if, if the outcome if the behavior to achieve that outcome was that I was going to drink on occasion fine if it was that I was never going to drink that was also fine with me and so I think what happened is, That so many people did start to drink again in order to self-medicate that stress. That certainly was something we saw. But also the alcohol experiment, which is just a free app in the app store. You can get it on alcoholexperiment.com, was something that people just stopped engaging with. Usually we have a few thousand people a week starting the alcohol experiment. All of a sudden, it just sort of fell off a cliff in March of 2020. People were not engaging with the alcohol experiment.
0: Actually, that month you can see it in the data. Like Boom, like just dropped.
1: The bottom dropped out. Interestingly, though, by May of 2020, (laughs) it was the biggest we've ever seen. And then by May 1st, we saw the largest alcohol experiments that we'd really ever seen. What I think happened is very similar to what happened in my drinking journey is as you kind of let the, the guardrails that you naturally have in your brain sort of fall by the wayside. So for me, those guardrails included things like making sure that I I stuck to a certain number of glasses per night or making sure that I never did X, Y, and Z or my behavior was like this. And eventually over time, tolerance grows and those guardrails kind of follow by the wayside. And one of those guardrails for people was not drinking at work, but then all of a sudden they're not going into work, they're at home and, and they can, you know, why not have a beer with lunch type deal? And that combined with just the need to self-medicate during that period of time is I think people really kind of let the guardrails down and said, hey, you know what? I'm just going to turn to alcohol because this is a super stressful time, which, by the way, we're always doing the best with the tools we have. So I feel like that is a totally normal and understandable decision and understandable choice.
0: And it felt apocalyptic, too. It was sort of like, well, I guess it's the end of the world, so I don't have to worry about sobriety or refraining from doing something that I feel is destructive in my life. Like, the life is over.
1: Right. Like, why even try? And if I can find some relief in this, then all the better. And we're alone. All of the mechanisms that we had been using to manage our lives, our anxiety, to get our needs met, they were all taken away. So, you know, you might get your need met by going into an office and then you're having conversation and you're getting your social need met or you're getting your significance need met by being good at your job. And all of that was just yanked away. And so people just, I believe, turned to alcohol in a much bigger way because we believe that alcohol helps us relax, it helps us, you know, relieve boredom, it makes things more fun. And I think what happened by May first of twenty twenty was that collectively people were starting to realize, wait a second, this isn't doing what I'd hoped this isn't actually making me feel better. I actually feel more anxious. I'm noticing that my sleep is worse. I'm noticing that I'm more anxious after drinking than before drinking. I'm noticing that if I start drinking by noon, by 5 or 6 p.m., I'm just miserable. And so I think there was just really a renewed interest. And I actually think that's the cycle of drinking in general, is that we do it, we dabble, our tolerance grows and grows. And then at some point in time, we start to look around and say, hey, this this isn't really working. This isn't doing what it used to do. This doesn't feel the same. I'm not getting those feelings that I used to get from one glass of wine until I have three. And then we start to question things. And I think COVID just really sped up that questioning in that process.
0: I think also to speak from my experience... I think I was someone who always sort of as a badge of honor was like, I don't have an addictive personality. It's just it's not in my family. And so the times in college that I would binge drink were few and far between and certainly the exception and not the rule. But what happened to me was not worrying or thinking about alcohol before quarantine. I might drink twice a week. I remember being pretty light drinker like in my 30s after my sort of boring 20s in New York became there's literally nothing else to do. We are stuck inside and the world is falling apart. (laughs) And this seems like the only way to make things fun. And all of a sudden it was like, what are we going to eat and what are we going to drink? And while it felt for me, it felt OK. I wasn't binge drinking. I was just drinking more than I ever had. What I've found and what has made me anxious is that as COVID restrictions have you know lessened and though we might be going back, but it, we're not going back into lockdown. But as we've come back into the world, as I've experienced new parenthood, I'm still now drinking six or seven nights a week when it had been much more infrequently. And now is where the anxiety has set in for me. And I would imagine that you have a lot of new subscribers like me. And what I love about the your program is that you don't need to say that I'm powerless over alcohol to be in the Naked Mind Institute or to affiliate with it. You can just want to change your behaviors you can want to change your relationship so i mean did have you seen my story many times or, or am i as unique as my mother thinks i
1: am no oh <laughs> you are but in a different way but absolutely over and it's that a lot of things, and I think that comes down to our eating habits, it comes down to our socializing. There are things pre-COVID that just have changed and changed significantly. And by the way, we've changed. So even if things were going to go back to normal, how we think or view things has also changed. So we're coming into a different experience just based on perspective. And that's fascinating. And I think one of the important things to know and understand is just vital for all of us is number one, it, it never should be a black and white conversation. The idea that in our society, it is an all or nothing conversation, actually, I think is one of the like most important Like either you're an constructs. alcoholic
0: or you're not, do you mean?
1: Either you're an alcoholic or you're not, and that you have to get sober. And that's 100%. Like both of those things, I think, are these black and white, if you drink at all, you're not sober, or you're an alcoholic, you're not an alcoholic. I mean, those things are so, first of all, scientifically false. There is no correct definition for alcoholic. They actually use something called alcohol use disorder, which is like a spectrum of use and abuse. And by the way, if you answer yes to two of the questions on this 11-question questionnaire, the one that's actually in the DSM, so two of those questions, just as a thought experiment that are fascinating, is one is, do you need to drink more than you used to get the same effect? And pretty much everyone I know who drinks would say yes to that. And then two is, do you ever have a time where you regret drinking as much as you did, where you say, I wish I wouldn't have drank that much? And again, pretty much everyone I know says yes to that. So this isn't just a, a conversation for this tiny fraction of the population who we deem are, are alcoholics, and that's somehow a genetic thing that we can't, by the way, test for. This is an everybody conversation. And so as soon as we realize it's an everybody conversation, and by the way, it's a wellness conversation, much more than it's addiction conversation. Another interesting statistic is that of all of the drinkers, right, if you take all of the drinkers and then you just take the people who drink what, you know, the CDC classifies as excessively, and that is more than 15 drinks a week for men, more than seven drinks a week for women. If you just take those excessive drinkers, only 10% of the excessive drinkers are deemed to be chemically addicted to alcohol. So again, this is like, it's such a false notion that this is a conversation for this tiny percent of the population.
0: And it's an incredibly diverse and broad spectrum of people. And and I think what I also love about the way you speak about alcohol and behaviors surrounding alcohol is that it's like, does it bother you?
1: Right. A hundred percent. If you feel great about
0: it, then don't worry about me, you know, me, Annie. If you don't feel great about it, then you should engage with the stuff that I'm putting out because like I have tools and I've built programs to help You know, you examine behaviors and change them. I mean, that certainly is a new approach, given that the most frequently referred to, at least in pop culture, approach has been the 12-step program and Alcoholics Anonymous, which is a very, you're counting days, you know, and that is a black or white thing. You either are sober or you're not. And your program allows for a lot more diversity of experiences.
1: And by the way, the price of entry into that program, the 12-step specifically, is quote, the desire to get sober. So unless your desire is to stop drinking altogether, which by the way, is not most people's goal, nor does it have to be, there's no good reason that it should be most people's goal. But unless your desire is that there's no point of entry into that program full stop. So, I mean, it's kind of not accessible for the majority of people right off the bat.
0: I don't know exactly how to term you, whether you're like the non-alcoholics, alcohol coach, alcoholic in quotation marks, but like there is this spectrum of behaviors and people's feelings about those behaviors that pertain to alcohol. Are there different words that you've come to use that can help me wrap my head around like There are people who are alcoholics. There are people who are heavy, happy drinkers. I don't know what terminology exists in your world, because your world seems a lot more forgiving than other sober, curious portals.
1: I think there's really just, you know, two ways people kind of classify themselves and they say they're alcohol free, which is obviously just they don't drink, but they don't have to take on any sort of label. They're talking about their behavior, not about who they are as a human being, which I think is really great. Or people just say, you know, they're mindful drinkers. So they're drinking with as much knowledge about alcohol as they might have about Advil. I mean, that's one of the things that's so surprising in our society is that we literally know more about the side effects of like ibuprofen than we knew about the side effects of alcohol. And so I consider my job is just to educate. So from a science-led, compassion-driven point of view, helping people understand that if you feel like you're drinking too much, there is absolutely nothing wrong with you. You are not morally flawed. There is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, I can prove to you definitively that your brain is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It was just never designed to consume alcohol on the levels that we're consuming it.
0: To that end, do you think that the whole framing of alcoholism as a disease has been unhelpful in some ways? Because it's like, no one wants a disease. <laughs> like, diseases right. are horrible, right?
1: I think the framing of the word alcoholic specifically, which I think is alcohol as a disease, has been incredibly unhelpful. When I was realizing that my drinking was more than was healthy, more than I wanted, certainly more than was making me really happy with myself and happy looking in the mirror. I was haunted by the question, am I an alcoholic? And I think that question was pervasive. Do I have a problem? Am I an alcoholic? And I actually had an experience where a friend of mine came over one day and we'd been drinking buddies since our college years. She came over. I asked to pour her a glass of wine and she goes, Nope, I'm sober now. I went to AA. And I was like, Well, what does that mean about my drinking? You know, we were drinking together last week. And she goes, Oh, no, Annie, I learned that I'm an alcoholic and I was born this way and you're not an alcoholic. And she had some criteria that categorized me as not an alcoholic and her as an alcoholic. And so the point of it also entry. also gave for me you to, freedom. Oh, yeah.
0: That <laughs> You're like, Okay, great. <laughs> yeah,
1: totally. So the point of entry for me to be even curious about the conversation, it was shut before it was even opened because I was curious at that point. I was like, wait, I'm curious. And from that point of curiosity, and if we can approach our behavior with curiosity without judging ourselves, without, you know, asking those terrifying questions, I think we're much better served. So I think a much better question is, Am I happy with how much I'm drinking? Me personally, am I happy with how much I'm drinking? And would I be happier perhaps drinking a bit less? And that's the whole idea behind the experiment is that it is an experiment. It's just simply testing the theory Would I sleep better? Would I be happier? Would my skin look better? Would I have clearer eyes? Would I look younger? Like what would happen if I was drinking less and testing that theory with a lot of scientific information so that at least you come out of it. If you're going to drink, you're drinking mindfully. You're drinking with knowledge. You're drinking with choice. Because what's happening to us naturally is that we have all this subconscious conditioning that's coming at us from the media, that's coming at us from our parents, from our families, from our social circles, All of it says alcohol is the greatest thing on earth. It's the end-all, be-all. We're not questioning any of it. And then, by the way, if you don't do it, there's something wrong with you, right? It's the only drug on earth. You're not
0: fun. Yeah, Yeah.
1: you have to justify not doing. And so if we can sort of unwind that, I think we'll be in a really good spot.
0: What we should mention is that in the alcohol experiment, it's not just, okay, don't drink for 30 days. It's like filling you up with the research an actual fact and study and data based knowledge that also might change your behaviors or your thoughts about your perceptions of alcohol. But one of the things you talk about is this idea that alcohol is a reward. Like mm-hmm. you've had a really horrible day. Everyone, including your boss and your colleagues, have made your day horrible, right? Mm-hmm. Like I had such a horrible day. I deserve a drink. Alcohol is my reward and if you try to tell me that deep breathing is what i get instead of alcohol i'm gonna roll my eyes there's something undeniable about the fact that like consuming a drug feels like a reward like a like i did something hard that made me feel bad and now i want to do something easy that makes me feel good what are good substitutions to reward a hard day's work or a fucking horrible day
1: deep breathing no i'm just kidding
0: (laughs) (laughs) a walk in nature
1: Yeah, exactly. Let me back up and answer that question with a little bit more of a frame. And I think that there's really three key things that anyone needs to change anything. And that is they need knowledge, they need emotion, and they need action. They need to actually change the behavior and take the action. And in our society, we purely. Work off action and we completely ignore knowledge or emotion. So, if you want to stop drinking, you just say, Okay, tomorrow's my last drink. If you want to start running, you say, Okay, tomorrow morning, I'm putting on my running shoes. And you ignore that you need to know something new and you need to feel something new. And so, first of all, when we know something new, and I present that in ways like, for instance, a drink is going to give you about 20 minutes of pleasure and it will light up the pleasure centers of your brain. But it will give you that in exchange for about two to three hours of feeling anxious and uneasy and, you know, kind of like uncomfortable and tired. And that's because the first 20 minutes, your blood alcohol content is rising. The next two to three hours, it's falling. And so if you know that information all of a sudden you feel differently at the end of the day when you're reaching for a drink. And by the way, at the end of that 20 minutes, you're tempted to reach for another drink because you don't want that alcohol content to fall. So you reach for another, it doesn't quite give you the same boost that the first one did, but then you have six hours of the negative. And usually we sleep through that, but then we wake up more anxious the next morning. Right. And when you see that clearly, it becomes less of a question of what do I do to substitute? Because you'll find those things. And, and by the way, they're not universal. We all have our own things that we find pleasure in doing, but it becomes... Becomes more of a question of like, well, why would I do that when I have a really bad day?
0: Right. People don't go through the information gathering phase of changing right. a behavior. It's like, okay, the diet starts tomorrow. It's not like, okay, let's figure out the way that this is going to be a different diet than every other diet I've tried. Yeah. And so
1: you're starting the behavior feeling like you really want to do that thing. So like in the diet example, you're like, well, I'm in a diet, but you still feel desperately like ice cream and french fries are the best foods on earth. So all you're doing is you're creating what I call cognitive dissonance because there's part of your brain that wants to do more of it for the short-term pleasure, part of your brain that wants to do less of it for the long-term goal all of a sudden you're fighting with yourself. And that is taking a ton of willpower, which we now know studies have shown us that wears out over time. It's not yeah. sustainable. And it's making you feel bad because we really discount internal struggle. You know, if you and I got gotten a heated argument about something, we'd both walk away with kind of a pit in our stomach. We just met 20 minutes ago, but you're fighting with yourself about stuff like this all the time. And that causes pain. And we don't think about that pain. We discount that pain but we do medicate it because we don't want to feel it.
0: Right. And so to use another example to describe sort of the process that your program entails is like, if I say, I don't want to eat meat anymore, I'm worried about the planet and I'm worried about animals and like tomorrow I'm just stopping, I'm going to do meatless Mondays. Then I'm like, fuck, like they're doing taco night at my favorite restaurant and they don't have vegan, you know, whatever. And then I end up not being able to do it versus like reading on eating meat or whatever. Or like watching a documentary that shows the slaughter of animals and goes into the statistics and the data surrounding the meat industry. That would arm you with more than just willpower because it arms you with knowledge, to your point.
1: And it arms you with knowledge, but that knowledge translates into emotion. And so at that point of Taco Tuesday, you actually have a different emotion about that taco meat. You look at it and you feel differently about it. You feel like, wow, that was killed in a moment of super stress. Wow, putting that into my body might be like this. You have visions and emotion. And I think when you have the emotion and you can think about this, any change that you've made successfully over time, even if you had to use willpower at first, eventually it becomes something you want to do. You know, even marathon runners or people who do extreme sports and are like, how do they do that day in and day out? They want to. They've created an identity whereby their emotion is actually driving that behavior. And that is really the key.
0: So a counterpoint or a devil's advocate to what we just said, which is I've never been to AA, but I understand that there's a time during an AA meeting where people can talk about their sort of bottom and their these traumatic, upsetting, terrifying stories that I guess I would imagine the goal is to help sort of solidify one's own belief that being sober is the best thing for them. That is knowledge. That's fear based in some ways, fear based information that your mind can take in. What's different about what you're talking about?
1: Well, I think they both can be successful. It's just kind of what do you want to be motivated by, right? Human beings, we change by being mo- motivated by moving toward pleasure or moving away from pain. And I did go to one AA meeting and it was one of the most depressing experiences of my life. It was beautiful in the sense that they're all there for each other. Every one of them gave me their phone number. They said call at all hours of the night, but it was heartbreaking in the sense of hearing the stories that were just so incredibly painful. And so that's a form of emotion. It's a moving away from emotion. I don't want that anymore. I don't want that pain. I don't want to experience that. And that can be really powerful to change as well, but it only is powerful If you hit that rock bottom, if you're sober curious and you're missing a little bit of sleep because your six month old isn't really sleeping, that's not going to be powerful for you. However, if your six month old isn't really sleeping, you're like, do an alcohol experiment and you realize, wow, my sleep is so much better and my anxiety diminished and look at my skin and I lost 10 pounds. All of a sudden you have this moving toward emotion that I think is actually more powerful over the long term.
0: It's funny you mention the baby thing because the other day I was just flipping through your book and I picked a random page and it was talking, I can't remember whether it was a situation from your experience or whether it was like a hypothetical but the situation was being a new parent and putting the baby to bed so you can have your time and everything about the first six months is getting to that like 12 hours of sleep so you can still have a relationship you can still have a night you can still have a drink and having wine i think it was either the hypothetical was like with your husband or your partner and realizing that at a certain point or looking back on your behavior That if something happened to your baby at night, if they had an emergent issue, would either of you be sober enough to drive them to the emergency room, technically, literally, actually sober enough, maybe you'd feel sober enough, but medically sober enough to make decisions in an emergency situation, the implication being it's not just about you and your husband or me and my husband or anyone and their partner anymore. And I think that example really resonated with me because you can feel like you're not binging, but say, would my blood alcohol level be over 0.08% if I had to get in a car and go to the emergency room? Yeah, that's a problem.
1: That was not theoretical. That was very much my actual story. And there was an instance when Luckily, my husband did not drink as much as I did, but I I do very, very much remember, you know, just get to sleep so I can start drinking kind of deal. And then, by the way, you know, since I was nursing, buying strips to test my breast milk to see how high the alcohol content was to see if it was fit for his consumption. And our oldest son now was three and we were on the coffee table. He was still awake. He was older now, so I wasn't nursing anymore. It felt Perfectly comfortable drinking, you know, from 5 p.m. on. It was probably 7.30, 8 p.m. We were sitting on the couch. He randomly fell forward, hit his head on the coffee table, and just, it was so strange. It split it open to where we could see bone. And luckily, my husband, Brian, was sober enough to drive, but I was not sober. And so I'm in the car and I'm totally and completely freaking out. You can see bone. I've got my son in my arms. We get to the hospital, and because I just didn't have the scaffolding, I think things that are traumatic hit harder when you're impaired, and so I get to the hospital, and I faint because I just can't handle it and because of all my drinking, and all of a sudden, I'm the one on the gurney. They're giving me fluids, and They decide that because it's right here on his face, he needs a plastic surgeon. So they direct my husband to drop me off at home before taking my son to a plastic surgeon because I am unable to be part of this situation because I'm not sober. So no, that was was a real story and very painful.
0: This idea, like, and it's a lot of things smacking me, uh, not just about alcohol, but everything that like having a kid makes different. But this, the idea that like, if my husband and I had two margaritas each and God forbid something happens and Evie needs to go to the hospital. That is like the sort of most softball example of your hardball example, but that still is a bad situation.
1: And so if you address that problem, with just being like, okay, that's painful and that's fearful. So I'm just not gonna do this behavior that I want to do, but I'm retaining a desire for it. What ends up happening is then you feel like deprived and like you're missing out and like you're sacrificing too much for parenthood and for your daughter and all of these like negative feelings. Surface out of that. And sort of what I suggest and what happens in the alcohol experiment is you get so much information that you actually feel differently about the drink. You don't actually feel the same sort of pull, especially if you go through it and watch all the videos <laughs> and do all the exercises. You don't feel that same sort of pull. So that instead of saying, okay, I'm not going to do that because of that pain that I'm moving away from. I actually don't feel the pull to do it in the first place. And I personally believe it's such a nicer way to change. It's a way that feels almost like a magic trick instead of, okay, things got bad enough or I got scared enough. It's all
0: about neuroplasticity, right? So for anyone listening who doesn't know that term, I just have been in so much therapy that I do. Essentially, if you think about thoughts in your brain or behaviors in your brain as having grooves, if you were going to sled down a snowy hill, like the first time you sled down, you're forging a new groove and then every other time you have that thought or do that behavior, you're going down the same groove. So the study of sort of neuroplasticity is, is, and I'm probably butchering this, like the study of changing the actual thoughts, forging new grooves. So I know that rehabs, for example, not to bring it to rehab because we're going zero to 60, but rehabs are incredibly expensive, generally speaking, and have a pretty low ultimate success rate.
1: So you're usually talking... $30,000 for 28 days is kind of an average price. And the success rate is between three and 5% of people actually stay sober from what I understand.
0: Putting a pin in why, what is your success rate with the Naked Mind Institute? And how are you guys defining success or collecting that information?
1: So we're working with the university out of one of the cities in Australia and their researchers. And the most recent things that we've had for the alcohol experiment is 75% of people maintain their sobriety for the 30 days and more than half of people then cut back after the 30 days. And so it is a little bit dicier because the success rates for rehab, AA, are for sobriety. And actually, I'm not interested in sobriety. (laughs) I'm interested in how you personally feel about your drinking, right? Right. Well, Nick's goal is different than Annie's goal. And so it is a a bit of a different metric. We're kind of comparing apples to oranges a little bit. So alcohol reduction does go down. We do have very good proof for that at a higher rate than other things. That being said, that's actually not the metric that I care most about. I care most about how somebody feels.
0: It's funny. I just, on my Instagram, I only have 10,000 followers on my Instagram. About an hour before you and I were scheduled to talk, I threw up a question that I was doing research for an upcoming episode of Eyewitness Beauty. And I asked, did your relationship with alcohol change during quarantine slash COVID-19? And about a thousand people viewed the story and 73% of people said yes. And 27% of people said no. The next question was, if you said yes, does your new normal with regards to alcohol, make you anxious or worried? And 70% said no, Mm. and only 30% said yes. So literally reversing that trend. And then the next question, have you tried to stop drinking in the last year? And 36% said yes. And 64% said no. And then I asked, if you started drinking more frequently during quarantine, are you A, trying to cut back now, B, fine with where I am, C, trying to quit altogether, or D, not thinking about it? And the most frequent answer was trying to cut back now, followed by fine with where I am. And what I think is interesting about that is 70% of the people who answered said that their relationship to alcohol had changed which I take to mean at least a good portion of them, meaning that it changed for the worse. But then th- the numbers flipped when people said if they were trying to change it or if it made them anxious or what do you make of that sort of inversion?
1: I think unfortunately we're so still in a place where if you and I went out to lunch and you ordered something and it had mayonnaise on it and I said, hey, you know, I don't eat mayonnaise. It wouldn't even be a thing, right? No issue. You'd be like, oh, Okay. But if you ordered a pitcher of margaritas and I was like, hey, I don't drink margaritas, it would make both of us uncomfortable. So we're just in the point in history where drinking has become so normal, literally the only drug on earth you have to justify not doing, that even the admission on an anonymous Instagram thing that you might want to change it, it creates anxiety. And it creates a feeling of like, oh, I can't even say that. Because if I say that even here, then I'm going to have to do something about it.
0: Where it takes an extra level of self-awareness too. Like one thing is like a factual thing. And the other thing is more like checking in with yourself.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to have to actually say to myself, maybe there's an issue here. And that's just super uncomfortable because we haven't made the question. Yeah. Would I just be happier without it? Like it's not a wellness conversation yet. I really hope that will change very soon, but it's a, it's an addiction conversation. It's an alcoholic conversation. It's a black and white conversation. The answer might mean I can never drink again, which is super terrifying. Like for us in our normal society, like who wants that? Right.
0: By answering, yes, I'm fine with where I'm at. That's like, I'm avoiding whether I feel the behavior brings anxiety or doesn't.
1: Yeah. And I wonder if it was posed do you want to eat less carbs or something? Something without any loaded. Everyone would say 100% would say
0: yes.
1: (laughs) Then I, yeah, I, I mean, you wouldn't say, yes, I've started eating a lot more carbs
0: no, I don't want to change my behavior immediately
1: say, but I don't want to change. I'm super happy with that. Right. Yeah. I started eating tons more sugar, but it's great. I mean, it's really great. It's serving me so well. I love all the extra sugar. I mean, it just wouldn't happen, but I think we just have, unfortunately, a long ways to go with the fact that even questioning your relationship with alcohol carries a burden that it shouldn't.
0: Two last questions for you. They're more sort of like getting your hot take on a few trends. What do you think about the California sober trend, which is obviously just smoking cannabis and not drinking? How does that hit you?
1: I mean, from a scientific perspective, it is arguably a very healthy alternative. You know, nobody's allegedly died from it. You're not going and beating your partner. There's so much less harm to self and society with cannabis than with alcohol that I don't have any. And again, I'm not about sobriety. Right. Like I don't personally, I have smoked plenty of weed in my life. I don't personally smoke it anymore because it just, I asked would I be happier without it? Turns out I am. But equally, why not? I personally don't have any problem with that. And I'm sure that there's recovery people who are going to be frustrated with me saying that. But my goal is that you know you best. If we can take away all the society, fear, shame, stigma, and we can just have you have an honest conversation with you where you're willing to be transparent with yourself, you know what's right for you. If that's smoking weed on occasion, fine. If that's drinking on occasion, fine. If that's never drinking again, fine. Like If we can just deconstruct all the things between our own inner wisdom and ourselves, like we're all going to be in a better place, right? So yeah, I think that's great.
0: And it's interesting too that the way you just framed it was from a scientific perspective. And that says a lot about your method in whole, because there are certainly arguments to be made that trading one substance for another substance is not dealing with the court. You know, like if you're like, okay, I'm going to stop drinking every night, but I'm going to smoke weed or take edibles every night. Like, okay, sure. Maybe it's not going to kill you, but it still would seem problematic.
1: Yeah, and I think that was really my own journey, right? Was that I couldn't find a scientific reason not to smoke. Alcohol, just every single thing it says it does, it really doesn't do that, it really does this. It's just so clear. The case against alcohol, so to speak, is really cut and dry.
0: For people who believe like facts, it's not woo-woo stuff, it's not breathe in, breathe out. This is like right, studies and, and facts. Right, my
1: opinion, it's just if you wanna be educated about the thing, you probably consume more than you consume most things, <laughs> hopefully besides water, then know this stuff about what you're putting in your body. This is a good thing to know. I couldn't make that case about marijuana. But what you said just now was absolutely true for me. I was self-medicating in a way that I had made a decision that I really wanted to, I started to see the benefits of living awake and instead of running away from my problems of saying, okay, why is this even a problem? What is the voice in my head saying? Why do I have these recurring thoughts that are just so negative and so toxic? How can I change this? And not being fully awake and fully present, even if it was with a substance that was much less harmful, was still impeding my personal growth, in my opinion. And so that was a big reason that I don't do it anymore was for exactly what you said. But that's super subjective. Again, that was me listening to me instead of, Anything else, and we all do want a quick fix. But it turns out that when you do the work to make peace with who you are, and your brain, and, and the level of activity in there, and the level of negativity, and you actually do the work, life can be really amazing. I've had more times where, like, side-splitting laughter, something comes out of my nose that I just drink because I'm laughing so hard, like things that I haven't had since I was like 12 in the last few years than I've had in my adult life because all of that. Gives That you have when you get stoned, or the hilarity when you get drunk. It just was a a fake version of what we really can access when we're just solving all this stuff that's keeping us from being really happy.
0: What do you make of the non alcoholic aperitif trend? So, in startups and sort of like beauty adjacent spaces, there are all these new brands banking on the sober curious trend that are popping up, where like the idea is like, you can still have your drink.
1: It's so interesting because, again, there's such an opinion in the, quote, recovery community that it's just masking the same thing. And again, I look at it from a scientific perspective. Like the problem wasn't the glasses or the martini <laughs> or the little twist of lime or right. the olive <laughs> juice or whatever. Like none of that the was the one big problem. ice cube
0: in the whiskey glass. That wasn't the issue. Right. Yeah, That
1: stuff is fun. Whatever. All that, do it. Whatever. The problem was... The actual ethanol, which is, by the way, what is also in gasoline that you're ingesting inside your body. That's the problem. So whatever you're drinking, who cares? Like if it works for you. There's
0: a reason why like alcohol companies were so easily able to pivot to making hand sanitizer. (laughs) And that's, right. that should say everything you need to know about 100%. Alcohol.
1: I think people should do whatever works for them. I think they should not be swayed by what other people think or whatever people are doing. I've known lots of people to have the instance where they replace their beer with a non-alcoholic beer and it's like a seamless transition, whereas other people are just trying so desperately not to have a non-alcoholic beer right. that they end up feeling deprived or missing out.
0: Because if you understand that it is, is the ritual that you love, like it's the sort of rolling of the cigarette or rolling of the joint or whatever it is that is you find relaxing and calming Then, if it is the making of the drink at the end of the day and sharing it with friends, like if it doesn't contain alcohol, like...
1: I remember walking out of my office, reaching for the wine glass, reaching for the bottle of wine and noticing that I felt better pouring the wine before I ever drank a sip. And I was like... Oh, that is really interesting. There is so much more happening here than actually what I'm ingesting. And so I think if it works for you, it works for you equally. I think there's some people who say, no, I'm super triggered by it. Like one sip of non-alcoholic beer makes me just go out and buy a six pack. Well, then know that about yourself and stick to your truth.
0: Okay. Say you've gone through a 30 day experiment and you've realized a lot of things to quote Kylie Jenner and you have come out the other side with a commitment to not drinking alcohol, the world still exists as it is. And people, if you're trying to make friends, if you're trying to date, if you're trying to do anything, everyone... But I'd say within 24 hours after you making that commitment to yourself, someone will say, oh, do you want to get drinks? A colleague, it could be a potential love interest. Do you offer in any of your programs playbooks of like how like because it to your point about it still being this like one thing you have to justify or this awkward thing you have to say like do you just go to the drink and order a club soda and that's how you say it like what kind of resources are there for navigating those decisions
1: so, there's tons of videos on this Naked Mind YouTube channel. And then obviously, this Naked Mind podcast has lots of resources. But just to give you, you know, what I think are the two easiest is to number one, know that whatever energy you bring into a conversation is the way that conversation is going to go. So, if somebody comes up to you and they're like, hey, let's get a drink. And you're like, oh, no, you know, I just, I, I'm just not drinking right now. I mean, you're literally begging them to feel sorry for you and to push you to drink, right? You're literally begging them. Whereas if you say, oh no, you know what? I'm just, I'm feeling happier right now, not drinking. And then you ask immediately a follow-up question, you've closed the conversation. They might feel a little weird, but you've just closed the conversation, it's done. And so your energy can completely direct this and you can test this and it's super true. Second thing I would say is that we just don't like to say no as human beings. It doesn't make us feel good. So I suggest saying yes. So do you want to drink? Yes, I would love some iced tea because you know what? I need a little caffeine before we get this night started. They're not going to notice that you only drink iced tea the rest of the night or yes, but can I have some water first? Because I'm so dehydrated. And then maybe later, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to care. And I guess I'll throw in a third, which is just show up early, go get your drink, whatever that is, whatever it's your mocktail, it's your non-alcoholic beer, it's just your iced tea, Mm -hmm. just have it in your hand. Nobody offers you a drink when you're already drinking something. It just doesn't happen. So I think we create this like big, scary thing in our mind. I did. I went into every situation apologizing with apologetic energy with all this stuff. And then all that stuff snowballs. It's just really about sort of the energy you bring to it. And by the way, I think that if then maybe you've been dating this person that you just met for a few weeks, And then they realize that you're super fun and they realize that it's not a big deal because the fear people have is because they have an idea of what sobriety looks like in their mind, unfortunately. And they know what to do with those people, by the way. Oh, you're sober. Okay, I can pity you. I can feel sorry for you. I can commiserate with your alcoholism and the fact that you have to go to meetings, but thank God it's not me. I'm dodging a bullet, right? And so that's the energy between somebody who's quote sober and somebody who's still a drinker. And I remember that with my friend. It's like, okay, well, it's not me. Well, let me help you with your problem, right? And that's kind of the energy that happens. But then somebody comes on the scene and they're just happy about being like not drinking. They're just alcohol free. They're not drinking. Nobody knows what to do with that. They feel like, wait, well, what does that mean about my drinking? Like I'm super uncomfortable now. But if you just show up and just demonstrate that you're not feeling sorry for yourself, you're still having fun. Nothing's changed. Nothing's wrong. Then people just realize, oh, well, this is great. But it takes your energy to shift first.
0: We talked about counting days and the black or whiteness of that, but how does a relapse or relapsing or falling off the wagon or whatever you want to call it, have a place in being alcohol-free and in your program?
1: So you can be alcohol-free today. Like you don't have to be alcohol free for your whole life. And that's the thing is like when you say I'm never going to drink again, you're not going to know you're successful until you're dead. So it's not an identity that you're trying to take on. Like I'm sober, like that's an identity I'm trying to take on forever. It's like, no, right now I'm just not drinking. You know, sometimes people don't even say alcohol free. They just say I'm just not drinking. And it can be right now. It can be. That feels safer.
0: That's like I haven't been drinking for the last few months. It's not that I'm not, but I haven't.
1: (laughs) Right. It's no big deal. We make this such a big deal because we have this idea because of all the fear factor of falling off the wagon and relapse and all of that stuff. But by the way, every single one of those false constructs, and they are false, keeps people stuck. Because what happens is that when you do have a drink, instead of just seeing it as a drink, it's no big deal. You were drinking thousands of these before. Like it's literally not a big deal. You see it as this, oh my gosh, this is a monumental thing. You create all of this meaning around it, Most of that meaning is shame. And then you start to hide, which is what shame does. You don't go back to the places that you were originally getting help from. Usually when somebody in AA relapses, They stop going to their meetings. You know, I was on recently Red Table Talk right before me was Kelly Osborne. So I'm sitting in the green room. She's out there talking to Jada and they're having this whole conversation. They say, we know you relapsed Kelly during quarantine. And what resources and support do you have now to maintain your sobriety? And she goes, unfortunately, 90% of my women's group relapsed And so the group is no longer there. And I hear this like a a punch to the gut because I was like, oh my gosh, like having a drink should be no big deal. The place you go, if you have a drink and you realize I didn't want that, that actually didn't feel good, should be right back to the place that helped you get to the place I've mm-hmm. even questioning it in the beginning. It shouldn't be that the group disbands because having a drink means leaving, right? And so I think the whole thing just needs to be reframed, which is why we call it a data point.
0: And you have resources, I'm imagining, for all sorts of scenarios as it pertains to the alcohol-free today lifestyle, as well as you're offering, uh, I should say for free, The Alcohol Experiment, which is that 30-day app. And it's also a book. Where else... Can we find you and reach you?
1: So if you're super curious about moderation and not going sober, I created an ebook free. It's at canimoderate.com. And then if you don't have an app or don't want to download the alcohol experiment, it's just at alcoholexperiment.com. And then I have a podcast, This Naked Mind podcast, and uh, YouTube, This Naked Mind, and then Instagram, Facebook, they're all This Naked Mind.
0: So if you are giving all this stuff away for free, like, how are you keeping the lights on at This Naked Mind?
1: That is such a good question. I actually also train coaches who go out into the world and whether they're therapists or addiction counselors or they're just have their own journey and their own story. And so we have an institute, this Naked Mind Institute, that trains coaches. And then we do have a paid coaching program where if you need more help than just a free online video series, you can sign up for the paid coaching program. It's called The Path. And it's actually a pretty big commitment. It's a year long program, but it's every single day a daily video, a daily email, live coaching. And really helps people who are kind of more in that 10%, the people -hmm. who are really stuck.
0: You're not going around saying you have to buy my method. It's more, here's the method. And then if you need more hands on help, then here are the ways that we can help you. And then also, it's kind of another toolkit for therapists to have.
1: Yeah, it breaks my heart so much that this conversation is so embroiled in shame and stigma and things that don't work with the brain and things that are not scientifically based and things that just don't work. And, you know, my perspective is that I would like nothing more than this naked mind methodology to be used in rehab centers. I don't actually care if I make any money from that. I was asked recently to speak to the Air Force, to all of their treatment center professionals about the issues with the term alcoholic. And like nothing makes me happier than that because it's just a different way And I would like people to use it. And then, yes, if you want more help, we're here for you. The coaches are here for you. But uh, very much want the method to be free and accessible. I'm very committed to that.
0: Thank you guys so much for listening. Again, if you want to find Annie Grace on the internet, she is at thisnakedmind.com. And she's on Instagram. She has a podcast. I recommend The Alcohol Experiment as a book, as an app. And you can find me at Nick at eyewitnessbeauty.com. You can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and rate, review, subscribe. We're produced by Jessamine Molly of seaplane Armada. And our theme music is by Danny Prezant. Our album art is by Simon Abronowitz. And I, I feel like without Annie, I'm forgetting things. What else do I have to say? Um, email us, tweet us, DM us, And we'll be back next week with an episode and we'll cover all the beauty news that we've missed and we will talk to you then. I will, we will, we will, but this is me.